Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hello and welcome everybody to Four Sober Chicks. This is Tracy and I'm so excited to introduce to you today a Recovering Out Loud guest, Kristen. And Kristen proves it's never too late or too early to get help that you need. She helps educate others in an effective manner to break the stigma around mental health and substance use disorder. So first, Kristen, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, It's wonderful to meet you. Oh, it's so great to meet you. Some of you, I know some of you, I don't know some of you. So I'm really grateful just to have been asked to be on. Thank you so much. And I know our listeners are very excited. So yeah, I mean, I think we should just dive right into it if you want to share, you know, uh, your story. Yeah. So again, you know, it's really important for me when I when I share either on a virtual platform or just like a physical in-person platform that, you know, right before our our meeting, I had to like sit down and like, because I'm running always, all the time, I'm always running. And it was important for me to sit down and just have a couple of deep breaths and, you know, remind myself like why I do this. Um, You know, the reason why like I share my story or why, you know, I I love talking about these things very candidly is because, you know, there was a point in my life where that wasn't um, so easy, you know, like people hear people share their stories all the time and they're like, wow, like they're so brave and so courageous and so vulnerable, but, It took a long time for me to be able to share so openly and honestly and feel comfortable doing it. And sometimes I'm very uncomfortable doing it, Um, but I do it anyway, because like faith over fear. But I I guess for like the listeners that don't know me, which is probably the majority of them, (laughs) um, you know, I grew up right outside of Philadelphia. um, And like, I I am a person that is in active recovery from substance use disorder, Um, substance use disorder, mental illness, And like I say recovery instead of like recovered or I'm, you know, person in recovery because like it's an active process. Um, But this was like a really like unknown process for me in the very beginning or before I even contemplated what it was like to be in recovery or be clean. Um, You know, the way that I grew up, like these conversations weren't really talked about. Um, I grew up like very upper middle class, um, which is something that I used as like that label. I use that as well since I grew up having all of these things, right? Like as a kid, I would be like, oh, you know, I have the 64 pack Crayola crayon pack with the sharpener in the back. Like I had like all of those things. So it was like, there's no way that I can be somebody that has depression or there's no way that I could be somebody that has like PTSD or CPTSD um, or somebody that has anxiety or somebody that, you know, really is like wearing all of these masks. And, you know, I was really good at really owning the idea that I had like my, my stuff together when like I really didn't have it together. And um, I've, I've come to understand, like, looking back through the lens of, like, nine-year-old Kristen, right, that, like, those masks that I wore were very much safety blankets or, like, these little protective blankets where, you know, if I held on to the, the image that, like, I was an athlete or I had all of the things or, you know, I was Mrs. Social, that, like, I didn't have to come home and and be like the other roles that I had in my life. And to like really just like simplify that for the for you guys is, you know, like I came home and this beautiful home in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And like, I, I ended up like taking care of my mother who was like very sick. Um, my mother was an alcoholic and she suffered with an eating disorder as well, anorexia. And, um, and she was abusive towards us and also loving towards us, which is really complicated for like a nine-year-old girl, right? Um, she loved us to pieces, but she didn't know how to love us. And I, and I think that's like an important thing to note. So 
you know, wearing like this parental hat of, you know, I have to be like a big girl and I, and I need to make sure my mom's eating. I need to make sure that wherever she hid her liquor that night, I could, you know, play hide and go seek with it and find it and dump it and hope that she didn't find out. Like it's those pieces that I kept very, very hidden because I was terrified A of the reaction right? Like what would people think of me, which is like what I like to call what a lot of us call the stigma. Um, what would they think if they knew? And B, I didn't want it. It's not that I didn't want to tell people. I just didn't know how to talk about it. Like, how do you go to school and like sit down with kids at lunch and be like, hey, so does your mom pass out in the bathtub, right? Like, how are you supposed to have that conversation? So, you know, the beautiful thing is, is that you know, I was introduced to therapy at a really young age um, because my father thought that that would be best. Um, my dad worked a lot. Um, he was out of the house like a lot, traveling all over the world for work. And my two older brothers like helped along taking care of my mom. And, um, you know, a lot of that, like I, I heard a really long time ago um, that you can only grow so much when you are in an unsafe environment. And like unsafe doesn't necessarily mean like physical safety, like there's like a lion, you know, and it's about to eat you. Like unsafe could be like, you know, you're putting your needs aside so you take care of somebody else's. Um, it could mean you get punished for speaking your mind either verbally or um, physically or, or however. And, um, you know, when, when we're talking about addiction, right, um, I'm a firm believer that like I have like this gene inside of me that like I do everything addictively. I do. Um, you know, there was this one time um, where like I look back and I laugh at it. Um, where like we had a basketball net in our in our yard and we were playing basketball. Me and my two older brothers, Connor and Corbin, and like I hit a three pointer and it was like ridiculous right like i had never gotten a three-pointer before and like i shoot the ball it like swishes in i'm so excited my brothers are like hooting and hollering like so excited for me it's like us like kids being kids and it felt so good to like not worry and then i said to myself i deserve a little treat like i deserve a little something so i went into the fridge and i got like the whipped cream bottle and it was a fresh one and i undid the thing and put a little bit on my finger and ate some and I was like mm, like that was really good and like I paused and I was like one more <laughs> and one more and one more and one more and I went so far as to put the cap on put it in the fridge close the fridge walk like 10 feet away just to walk back and do it again and like I finished this can of whipped cream right like it was gone an entire can of whipped cream I had in like 10 minutes and um and I got super sick and I wanted to do it again. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't even think about the consequences and I didn't even care about the consequences. I was like, that just felt so good. And like, that is like such a silly representation of like what addiction is, but like take that little snippet that's like kind of silly and fun for like a eight year old girl and like put that in every aspect of my life. And like, that was how I lived. That was how my mother lived. Um, in some aspects, that's how my brothers and my father lived in different types of addiction, like workaholism um, or like perfectionism. So, you know, like I, that was all fun and games until like my, my mother had her heart stop. And, um, you know, my mother went through a crisis where she attempted and completed suicide. And that was in a 2009 December 6th of 2009 and um and I was I was 11 right before my 12th birthday and it was shocking um it was destabilizing and it was relieving and I think that that was probably the hardest thing to feel as not just an adolescent, but even an adult would have complicated feelings of like losing a parent or losing a loved one. And you feel like that all you can do is breathe. And, um, and you can go out after school and play with your friends and not have to worry anymore. And, and that feeling brought along so much shame and so much guilt that I buried it, man. I buried it. I buried that. 
I buried the abuse that my mom inflicted on us. I, I buried everything and I buried it with alcohol. Um, and like, I started drinking at like 12. Um, and it was, I, I, I want to say like, and it was the worst thing ever, but like, it wasn't right. Like at the time it was awesome. And I was like, I finally figured out how to like manage this feeling. And I finally figured out how to like deal with it. And like, it wasn't dealing with it. It was suppressing it. Cause like, listen, like I learned from experience that like, if you shove down the feelings, they come back up, but they don't only, they don't just come back up. They come back up stronger. Cause like they need to be dealt with, like they can't be ignored. Um, and a lot of it for me was like, you know, it went from like drinking with friends um, because like I got adopted by like the cool kids, right? <laughs> it was cool and I felt accepted, um, but I was really just being like a chameleon. I was mirroring them so they would like me because I didn't know who Kristen was. And, um, and it went from that to like smoking weed and then smoking weed went from like other drugs and like, you know, the progression was like so fast. And like, I think that's like really important to know because like I hear from kids all the time in my line of work, which I'll talk about just briefly for a little bit later on. Um, you know, I hear from kids all the time. They're like, well, weed is legalized. Um, like it's, it's herbal or earthy, you know, like it comes from the earth and like, that's all well and good. Like, cool. Why are you using it? Are you using it because you can't sleep at night because like you literally can't go to bed without your thoughts racing a million miles a minute and then like you know you can't go to bed without the tv on because you don't want to listen to your thoughts like well, why are you using a substance and um and also like brain development you know it's not really done until 25 so you know these were not things that i was thinking about when i was 15. I was thinking at 15, I'm going to party my butt off until I can't party anymore because it feels really good. And all I wanted to do was feel good because I had grown up with like horrible things happening in my household. And I kind of felt like I was owed it, right? I was like owed some relief and I was owed this card. Like I, I remember like a, a cop later down the line, he told me, he was like, why... Like, I shouldn't be looking for people like you. I shouldn't be, like, going after people like you. I should be going after, like, murderers and, you know, people that harm people. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, my mom died by suicide. Like, I've been hospitalized multiple times. I've gone to one rehab. My father wasn't there. I mean, I just, like, freaked out at him. And, you know, I... I ended up like self-harming in front of him because self-harm was a big part of my story too. And he just threw a towel at me and he was like, you need to get your together. And, um, and that car didn't work as easily the, the older I got because the consequences got so large. Right. Um, you know, I, I ended up going away, um, to treatment at 17 and this was my second treatment center, uh, for drug and alcohol. I had been in psychiatric hospitals about two or three times. And um, I went to care and treatment centers, which is uh, in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. And when I got there, I did not want to go because I was 17, but they kind of told me you got to go because, you know, you're a minor and we can tell you where to go. And, uh, and it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Not because like, you know, I got off drugs, right? Or not because like I stopped drinking, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I got taken away from my environment. Like, I don't think I quite realized like walking into the household where my mother attempted and completed suicide every single day was that, I, di I didn't realize how much that was affecting me or that like being in my bedroom, right? Where like I was abused um, physically, mentally, sexually, like that was not good for my mental health. Um, because it was re-traumatizing and re-triggering and I needed to be in a different environment where I could grow. Um, so not only did I learn about how drugs and alcohol affected my body, I learned that like they were not a sustainable way of dealing with my feelings. It was not sustainable. It was very short term. Um, and it actually didn't deal with any of the root causes. So, you know, I, I found that uh, being in treatment, I, I was there for about a 
two months and I had a suicide attempt in treatment. Um, and it was in that suicide attempt. Uh, a lot of people ask me, like, why did you do that? You know, you were in a safe place, you had support. And I said, it just felt like everything was too much. It just felt like I couldn't handle it. And like, thank God I survived. Because like the next place that I went to was a psychiatric center and I was there for one month. And I waited every single day to get a phone call that I was going to have a bed available for me to go to a treatment center in Chicago, Illinois. And I drew pictures and I journaled and I made friends, um, my little psych ward friends. I always like joke like it's, you know, but it was like everything to me. You know, I had meals, I had a place to sleep. You know, we got in little fights, but like at the end of the day, when we were opening up mail, cause we had like mail time, might've been like three weeks that I was there. I got a phone call and it was like one of the phones that was hooked up to the wall, right? With the cord, which was like crazy. Um, and uh, Cause those were the only phones we could use. And I got a phone call and I was like sitting my back towards the wall on the phone and it's my dad. And he says, pack up your stuff. We're leaving tomorrow morning. Your brother Corbin is going to pick you up and we're gonna get you on a plane to Chicago because there is a bed available. And it was in that moment where I completely broke in the most beautiful way because I remember sliding down that wall, sobbing because I just felt so lucky to be alive. I felt so lucky that like I had resources um, I felt so lucky that like I was going to be able to continue forward in my recovery and that treatment center was called Timberline Knolls and I was there for about six weeks and I came home and um, I had about five months under my belt of recovery time and everything had to change right like I, I changed high schools um, my junior year I was in my junior year of high school I uprooted my high school to go to this other high school called uh the Bridgeway School, which is the only recovery high school in Pennsylvania. And uh, in that school, it was like six of us, six kids and like a no AC. I'll never forget it. I when, when we interviewed, I was sweating my butt off. I was glaring at my dad. He was pretending not to notice me because I was like, dad, I'm not going here. Like, I'm not doing it. And he was like, what do they say? Like one more step, but one step at a time, you know, he's like getting the lingo. And I'm like, I hate that you're getting the lingo. <laughs> like he like was using it against me. Um, but it was true. Like, you know, these healthy risks that I had to take. Um, it was in high school that you know, I, I went to support meetings, so like 12 step meetings. Um, I continued to go to therapy. I made friends, which is another part that I'm sure we'll talk about, which was so hard um, being 17 and clean. Like all my friends were like people in their 50s for meetings, but like they were cool. Like I'm still friends with some of them today. Like that, those were my people. Um, but I found that the longer I stuck around in sobriety, the more people came in that were just like me that were in their early twenties or in their late teens that were trying to get clean too. And they would see me and be like, oh, you have like a year? Like maybe I can stay. Like, and I, and I learned about service then, right? Um, I'd like take them to meetings when I finally got my license. Like it's just, you know, I didn't have like a very typical you know, like, like upbringing in my late teens, but, you know, I, I found that there were things that I could do, like, just because drinking and drugs weren't available to me, well, they were available to me, but just because I wasn't picking them up doesn't mean that, like, my life is over. Like, my life was, like, just beginning, and I didn't even understand it. I was just trying to, like, not pick up a drug, right, and um, I graduated from high school, unbelievable i turned 18 didn't think i'd make it past 18 um and i had this whole life this whole life that i needed to plan for um that i didn't even know existed like i got I got accepted into college um i graduated uh two years ago a year and a half ago two years ago i graduated with my ba in corporate communications it's like if marketing and com had a baby you know that was like my degree and um it was it was cool man like 
and, and again, like, again, like a whole other animal being in college, right? Like, what does that look like with a couple of years under your belt? My, my queen dates February 10th, 2015. So like a little over eight and a half years. Um, and I'm 25, like I'm 25 years old and I'm, I'm chilling. Like it's, and I still do the same stuff that I did back then today. Like nothing has really changed in that regard. My life has just changed. Like how I manage and deal with life has changed. Like, you know, right now I, I work with an organization called Minding Your Mind and, and my whole career and job, my full-time job is to talk about this stuff on stages and in classrooms, like all across the country. Next week, I'm on Sunday, I'm leaving for Minnesota and I'm gonna fly there and be there for like a week and then fly home. And, you know, it's, it's just like really cool. Like, I, I love being able to like let kids know that like life is also not super pretty and super awesome either. Um, my first couple years of sobriety were like hellish. Um, you know, I stopped using drugs, but like I sure picked up some other habits that weren't proactive for my recovery, like dating and men, like that was a big one. Um, food and exercise, like developing an eating disorder while I'm in recovery. Like, you know, it's not super linear. All I know is that like, if I don't pick up, I can't get high. Um, that like needing to change environments was really huge. Um, I moved out of my house, my parents' house uh, three years ago, and it was incredible. Um, I was sad to leave, but I was happy to be able to like make my own home. Like I just moved in with my partner like six months ago, and we have our home with our dogs and, you know, dating and recovery. That's like a whole other topic. Like, <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough. You know, guys will be like, you want to go get a drink? And I'm like, I'll get a cup of coffee, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to go to the bar and get a drink with you. Um, and is that even an option? Right? Like, do I want to like be with? Right? So, you know, I don't know. That's just like, the long winded version of I'm Kristen, I'm in recovery, I've been through some stuff, but like, it's, it's all good, because it doesn't need to like, recovery doesn't happen overnight. Like, I'm still figuring it out. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just staying clean. So that's, uh, wow. that's a little bit about me. Thank you guys. Oh my gosh, Kristen, I think you know exactly what you're doing. And I <laughs> am so impressed. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm like double your age. Okay. I'm going to be 50. <laughs> and you're like, and here you are 25 years old. We have some similarities. I loved your statement your mom, she loved us and she abused us. I mean, you'll learn Meredith and I story is very similar. And we had a mother that was just, you know, she, my mom loved me. I know she did, but she also abused us, you know, mm -hmm. and that took me a long time to understand the manipulation, the gaslighting, everything that she put up me, us through um, and accept that because I always put her on this, you know, she was a single mom and she had to do it by herself. And but no, you know, when I became a mother, I, I was like, you have choices, right? And you have to make sacrifices. And, and so I just, I love that. And I, and I love the fact that, I mean, gosh, you're so wise. I mean, wearing the parental hat, you know, at nine and just knowing what that means now at 25, I'm just blown away. I, I can't tell you. I'm so excited to to have you here and, and you're inspiring me. And I, because when I was in the rooms, I got sober uh, the first time, probably like six years ago. And then I went back and drank because I wasn't an alcoholic. I just abused alcohol. And so then I went, I went back when, you know, you, I'm back, you know, after eight months of drinking where I was even worse. So finally, finally, I, I, fit, I found out, you know, and I admitted I was an alcoholic. I remember an early recovery and like looking around the rooms and thinking like, I don't like, I would see young people and I would feel for them in a way. Right. Because at least in my mindset, still, I had this time where I was wild and I got drunk and, you know, but, but like, I'm looking back now and I'm having flashbacks, like they weren't good times, you know, they were scary times. And, and, and so I think just, you know, we can talk about that because you actually, you know, being so young, making this huge life choice, 
because this is what it is, right? And just being so wise and ready and, and just able to have that clarity and then the strength to continue and to find the tools and to keep going and then to deal with the social aspect of it, of being, so, I mean, we deal with it in our 50s, you know, late 40s and 50s. And so I don't know, I'm just, I want to hear more. I want to, <laughs> I don't know if I'm really asking a question, but yeah, I mean, it's, and, and now you're speaking to young people, just bravo. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Seriously. I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring up like, you know, how we perceive what it was like, right? Like back in the day, it's like, oh, that was so much fun. I was so crazy. But it's like, I also look back and I'm like, uh, these were like incredibly dangerous situations where like I could have gotten killed and like didn't even realize it. I mean, I go to therapy for the times where I thought they were fun. <laughs> it's like, I thought it was a blast and now I'm in therapy because of it. So, you know, I, I think too, like you talked about, like you went back out because, you know, you, you just had a problem with drinking, you know, you weren't an alcoholic and, you know, I've definitely had times where I'm like, well, maybe I am just like a traumatized person and I'm just dealing with my trauma. And that was my coping mechanism at the time, but I can totally have a drink now, just like the thought. And as soon as I have that thought, like I call somebody and I tell them about it. I try to, um, doesn't happen often, but there's a saying in our, in our fellowship. And they say like, you know, basketball players think about basketballs and like alcoholics will think about alcohol. Um, and it's like, I'll think about it, but just cause I think about it doesn't mean like I should do it. My first That's thoughts right. are usually pretty poor. <laughs> like most yeah, of I the have, time. I've, I've been in situations where people are like, well, you're in, you're in a good place in your life now. So right. And I'm like, okay, so a diabetic has their diabetes under control and you're going to let them eat the cake. Yep. You know, yep. it's, it's the same kind of thing for me. So yeah, I hear you. I'm going to hop in here. Um, I can't even explain to you how much our stories parallel. Uh, it's, it was, a, it was trying to organize my thoughts. So my mother was an addict, very much parentified at a very young age. And I lost her to suicide when I was 15, right before my 16th birthday. Um, and I felt relieved for, because I, would call hospitals and police stations when she would disappear and she would bring these random men home and, and, you know, like no one was taking care of me and I had to take care of the whole house. And, and I also had a lot of guilt because I couldn't save her. So I had this, this kind of really a lot of confusion and my mother, you know, I, I refer to her as this like star that shone so bright and then she burned out. Like she was this amazing, incredible woman who is so deeply flawed and couldn't really take care of anyone else and that's really hard to reconcile as a kid because you're supposed to be safe and you know all of those things and so I went to multiple types of treatment for me my food was the biggest one I did start drinking at a very young age and I stopped drinking as soon as my mom after my mom died and I was sober for about three years and um man I wish I had stayed there but um, I wasn't ready. So, you know, um, I hadn't gotten the kind of treatment that I needed to be able to manage life on life's terms. And I didn't have the role models around me that showed me how you deal with the difficult stuff, how you pick yourself up. Like I had a role model that just showed me how you use men, food and, wa and water and alcohol um, to numb and that we didn't deal with those things. Um, and so I also went to an alternative high school, graduated class of 14. Um, and it for me, that was kind of the respite from the mental health part of it. And um, college and not having anybody controlling me for the first time in my, in my life, because people were very controlled, was, um, I don't know how I survived college, to be very honest, I really don't. And it wasn't until later in life I had to leave my, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I had to leave Pittsburgh. Um, so that change in environment was also like you had shared about really life-changing because I didn't have to be reminded of all of these things. Um, but later in life after treatment, 
what I found for me is that um, I'd gone to therapy, a lot, a lot of therapy, but I had never dealt with the trauma sober, like sober from a substance, food, alcohol, whatever it was. Um, and it wasn't until I did that, that that was like the game changer. And you talk about the different things that have come up. I call it the recovery onion, where you're always peeling these different layers. So my question for you is what, I know you went to treatment, but what was the, or what is the, the game changer for you? What do you use to deal with the CPSD, the CPTS, whatever, complex trauma? <laughs> um, and, you know, in these things that kind of come up because you have graduations without your mother, you have college without your mother, you have this partner, you know, like the, I found there's these holes that really growing up in the way that I did, I just filled them with things you know? Um, so how are you managing that in your recovery? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Heather. Um, and thank you for sharing as well. Um, your experiences, uh, you know, I, so I didn't really talk a whole lot about my family, um, like where they are today. Um, I did watch my dad get married. He got remarried, um, to a woman whom I love. I adore her. Um, it, he didn't date for like a long time and then he dated her and they got married and I have a stepsister now. And it's like, you know, all like very interesting, amazing things, like very full circle. Um, and there are some things that were like super healing about that, like watching my dad reparent, um, you know, Ting, who's my sister, she's 11 now, but when she was like smaller, it was kind of tough to like sit there and watch him read her a book and, uh, be like, well, shit, where were you for me? Right. Um, depending on the mindset that I was in. So it was like, if I was like in a good headspace, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so healing. And then like the next day, if he did it, I'd be like, I hate you. You know, it's just depending on where I was. And, you know, when things happen, um, for instance, when, I met my partner now, Tim, we've been together for you know almost three years and uh, wishing that I could introduce him to my, to my mother, right? Um, wishing that I could like call her. Um, we were in the car together. We were driving home from Cape Cod, Massachusetts and he was hooked up to my Bluetooth and it said mom on the Bluetooth because he was calling his mom and it was my car. And I had this moment of like, Ugh, like what? like. It felt I thought it was my mom and and it was his mom and I I got like a little emotional for a minute and you know those things like don't go away ever I don't I don't I don't think so like I'll always miss my mom and like there are some days where like I just wake up and like every bone in my body wants to hug her and see her and there are other days where weeks go by months go by and I don't even think about her. And then I feel guilty because I don't even think about her. And it's like this weird balance of, I just want my mom, um, but also I've learned how to allow other people in my life that are healthy and people that love me reparent me and also reparent myself, right? Um, not in the unhealthy, independent, like nobody can get in way, like the way where it's like, I'm allowed to like be in bed for 10 more minutes when I wake up in the morning and have my partner bring me a cup of coffee and enjoy that moment instead of being like, oh, you got to get up and you got to go like, you know, because that's what I would want my mom to do. Um, I would want my mom to like get me flowers and like have flowers in the house. So like I get myself some flowers and I put them in the house and it's just, you know, there's that whole piece. And then there's also, you know, like the seed. CPTSD piece, um, it's a tough one, that like, it doesn't go away. Like, I'm still in therapy, like, I still need help. Like, there are some things that will trigger me out of nowhere. And like, thank God, I have people in my life that like, recognize these triggers. And they're like, what do you need right now? And sometimes I don't know what I need. So they just lead me away into like a safer place. Um, and you know panic attacks and and all that stuff like it is complicated but it's not like 
ongoing, I suppose. Like it's not back to back to back to back. It's like maybe a couple times a month where I'll get kind of messed up in my head. Yeah, I love that. And thank you know, thank you for sharing that. And I think I think a lot of people think sobriety means everything's perfect once you get there. Once once I stop drinking, everything's gonna be perfect, right? That magical thinking. And I tell people in early recovery, this is the hardest part. This is the, because you now have to learn to deal with life on life's terms. Yeah. And that's why so many people relapse, right? Like the, the truth about it, the ugly truth is that life is still really hard. And if you have trauma, you get, things are hard for a lot of other reasons. Um, but I found, and it sounds like, you know, it's similar for you that life is so much better dealing with it and living this way than it ever was without it. Absolutely. No, it's, it's true. Like I'd, I'd rather be in the rooms wanting to get high than be out there wanting to be in the rooms, you know, and wanting like, to die. And yeah. I'm wanting to die. Like I, I, I would rather be around people that, and, it, and it's like hard finding people, right? Like it's hard, you know, if, you know, I didn't really have like a support group until like year three, where like I had people where like I really felt like I could like shed all my skin and they would be there for me and like love me even more because of it. Like that's tough. And especially like I hear from kids all the time, they're like, well, I have trust issues. And I was like, welcome to the club. Like we all do. Like it's it's not easy to like let somebody in and like, you know, kids will also ask me like, how do you bear your soul hundreds of times during the year? And I'm like, well, I'm also only sharing things that I feel comfortable sharing. You know, I don't need to share what it was like that one Thursday night. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not necessary. Um, and I also don't feel cool sharing it right now. It's between me, my therapist and my sponsor. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and there, there are just multiple ways that that we go about finding that support, but it, it just time takes time. Um, I'm going to jump in. Uh, it's funny because it doesn't matter the age at the end of the day. Addiction is addiction. It, I mean, we've said it before. Addiction does not discriminate <laughs> at all. And the fact that you at 17 could be going through the exact same thing, you know, like our stories parallel when I was 32, you know, so it, it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, I just pray that there is a wave of people your age who don't have to go through what collectively us five have gone through in order to realize that any substance that alters your frame of reality is actually not worth it. Um, it may seem fun. It may seem, you know, like I was saying before we started, it was something, even though I had a mother who was a full bore alcoholic, I was still excited to be able to join that club of being able to drink. And it's mind blowing to me because in the same breath, I would tell myself, but I'm not going to be my mom. I'm not going to have the lifestyle she had. I'm not going to do the things she did. I'm not going to do all these things that she's legitimately painting on the wall for me. And yet I chose the same vice. I chose all, I mean, it wasn't the same path, but I chose the path, you know, to get to that point that my life was in shambles. I didn't know what way was up. You know, I didn't know, uh, I, you know, when you said that um, she loved us, but she didn't know how to do it. That was me when I had my kids. I would die for them, but I did not know how to show them the right way, how much I love them because the, ability for me to actually grab I wasn't taught that I wasn't modeled that I was modeled I woke up at two in the morning calling bars to find my mom because she was not home yet 
And I would watch headlights go down our street, praying that the next one would be pulling into our home. And then I would wake up in the morning, passed out on the couch, get myself ready for school, go to school and just pray that my mom was at home, whether she was passed out when I got there or not. Just the fact that she was home and I didn't have to be alone. And that's now like, I mean, I'm in therapy and that has been the biggest topic because it has affected every single aspect of my life. It's affected my marriage. It's affected how I treat my children now. It's like, it's unbelievable. You know, I'm a workaholic, you know, I I work and put that above a lot of other priorities in my life that should not be there. Um, But it's just the parentification that we went or I should say that we had to do at such a young age um, is absolutely mind-blowing to me to where that was never a part of my story. And the more I'm in therapy, I'm like, oh my God, that's like the foundation of where it all started, you know? And um, I am now like immersing myself in books and things because I want to do, I want to do it right. I want to love the people in my life who deserve it. I want to love them right. And I honestly have had moments in my head where I'm like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. And I think that has been, I mean, I'm turning 42 this year. And for me at this age to be like, oh my God, I don't know how to love people. It's mind blowing to me. And it concerns me because my children, you know, I'm like, I've got to figure this out like real quick. Or who knows, but I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. And I am so proud of you that at the raw age of 25, you are on that path of having not it all figured out, but you are on that stretch of highway where you are observing the scenery, you're taking everything in and you're continuing to your next destination. And I think that that's absolutely, absolutely huge. So kudos to you, but, um, yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't matter if it was when in the eighties, when I was a kid to five years ago for you, it is the same absolute story. Yeah. You're so spot on with everything that you said. Um, You talked about like the parentified child stuff. Oh my God. I did not even realize how much of a caretaker I was like until I got into therapy and then therapy, they were like, Hey, you stopped using drugs and drinking because you thought that was the problem. Well, guess what? Here's everything else. And I was like, Oh, like that's, that can't be right. But it was right because it showed up in all of my relationships. Um, I'm a conflict avoidant. I hate conflict, hate it so much because I'm so scared that you're going to explode or that you're going to have some weird reaction and I'm not going to be able to handle it. And it's going to be all my fault. Right. When it's like you take a step back, it's not my fault. I'm just setting a boundary, which to some people it's like, you just set a boundary. And it's like, but what if they don't like me? Like, and it's, what if they yell at me? What if they hit me? What if they take something away from me? And like, that's not the norm. Um, You know, I always thought empathy was my superpower, but empathy was my defense mechanism, you know, it was my, my, my saving grace in my household because I needed to be empathetic so I could be able to gauge how this person is feeling in order to be able to act a certain way to not trigger that person. So it's like, I learned all of this in therapy, but it doesn't mean that like, since I learned it, that like, I can stop doing it because like I still do it with my partner. He comes home after a long day of work and I'm like, is he mad at me? Like, I'm so (laughs) self-centered. I think everything's about me. And he's like, no, I'm just tired. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Or like making sure the house is spotless when he comes home. Like for what? I mean, it's a nice thing to do, but like in fear of if it's not, 
then and and he has never ever in a million years shown that like something bad would happen if i didn't you know what i mean but it's like that old wiring of like if i don't do this then something bad will happen even if that relationship doesn't show that to be true so like i totally get that meredith like so much like how do you love a person when you have been modeled like the exact opposite you're speaking my language on that one <laughs> and all y'all make me feel old because <laughs> I, I feel like the conflict avoidance is something that I am still dealing with and I'm in my 50s so <laughs> um you know it's it's something that's very tough to to get rid of but what you were just saying Kristen was <laughs> like oh I still do that and I'm really trying not to do that but it's like is he mad at me was it did I do something wrong like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and they could be doing all the things that I'm worried that I'm doing. And it, it doesn't, it's like, okay, well, that's fine. You know, and I'm oppositely, I'm thinking it's the end of the world. <laughs> so I, I, I totally get that. Um, I want to flip over real quick, because I know we're running out of time um, to what you're doing today and the impact that you are having on this younger generation, you're going into schools, you're, you're speaking your story. And I, I just want to know how that is affecting the people in the audience. Like, what are you seeing from the kids? Like, are they coming up to you? Are they saying, you know, you changed my life or what, what are you hearing from them when you tell your story? This is my absolute favorite thing to talk about my 100% like, oh, I've been doing this for six years, um, six years. And I love it, love it when I walk into a school and they see me walk on stage and they automatically judge me like straight up. I see it all in their faces. They're like, she's not gonna have anything to say. Um, arms folded on their phones, like not, and I'm talking about like a crowd of like 600, right? And and I just start talking and I see like the walls kind of like, you know, they kind of look up like what? Like, and it's like this identification process. I only talk for like 30 minutes and I leave time at the end for like a Q&A and sometimes there's a Q&A and sometimes they're not. And then I just say, well, if anybody wants to come up to me afterwards and talk, please feel free. And there are kids that like wait for everybody to leave and they come up to me and they say, I thought I was the only one. I've had kids tell me, um, you know, I have a friend that wants to harm themselves and I don't know what to do. Um, I've had kids come up to me and say, I want to harm myself and I don't know what to do. And there was one girl in sp specifically where, you know, I said to her, I was like, have you ever talked to the guidance counselor here? And she was like, no, I haven't. And I was like, do you know where the office is? And she was like, yes, I do. And I walked her guidance. I was like, would you want to walk with me? Like, I'll sit with you. And she was like, yeah, okay, okay. She was very apprehensive. But I sit down with her and I kind of help talk to her and, you know, open up a little bit. And she's like, looking at me, she's like, it's way easier to talk to you than him, you know? <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a counselor. Um, but we ended up like talking the three of us together. And I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jet. Um, you know, if you need anything, like, please reach out, like, please reach out to the support system here. Like they, they have, they had a great support system at that school. And, um, you know, I don't have the capacity where I can like follow up with these kids, but it is nice to know that there are kids that come up to me and they say, I thought that you were going to say a bunch of nonsense. I thought you were just going to say like stats and facts and tell me not to do drugs. And I was like, that's not my MO. Like, I'm just here to tell you a little bit about myself and I hope that um, in a couple of years, or I, I hope that I get reintroduced to somebody and, and hopefully we can just connect, you know, um, because when I see a kid like grasping, gasping for air and they look at me and they're like, if you can do it, I can do it. I'm like, this is everything, everything to me. My whole entire career was meant for this. Um, you know, there was a girl that said that she had a plan to take her own life and she ended up getting help that day. 
she went into psychiatric care because of what I said. And like, if my entire career led up to that, then like my whole, then I can be done, you know? Um, so I hope to continue what I'm doing because I, I absolutely, absolutely adore it. Um, nothing, nothing, Kristen, I can see stopping you. And I mean, I'm just so impressed. Oh my gosh, I love it. Thank you. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you, you asked earlier, why do I do this? And your last statement answered it. You know, you save lives. You save young lives, Kristen. I'm like, where were you when I was a teenager? I'm so, I mean, and like to know that, you know, my daughter is now in college, but she's, she's your age. She's 25. You know, and, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell her about you. I, she still needs help. She, you know, she's still a young drinker. She's still struggling. I see it. Right. And, and she knows she can talk to me, but I'm her mom. I'm her mom first and foremost. Right. But I'm also 50. I'm, I'm really blown away by your story and your service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please connect me with your daughter. <laughs> I will. I will. I would love to. I'd be honored. Wow. So uh, what an amazing episode. I'm, I'm pretty emotional. Um, thank you all for listening, for meeting Kristen, for being here uh, one day at a time, especially for young people. Um, there is resources, there's help. There are people just like you out there. You are not alone. And um, yeah, you can find us on all the uh, podcasts, go to our link tree. And uh, just thank you so much for listening to four sober, five sober chicks. Kristen, real Hi, fast, everybody. how can people find you? Yeah, so uh, Instagram is best. So it's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, period, H-A-R-O-O-T-U-N-I-A-N. It's pronounced Heritunian. It's very long. Um, or you can just do Kristen Minding Your Mind, and I'm sure that you can find me. Um, so yeah, please feel free to reach out. I'd, I'd love to know what y'all thought, but I love you all so much. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at four sober chicks. That's number four sober chicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.